The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is Brian. Uh, the episode is going to start in a second. So I get asked about these Seth Godin episodes more than anything else, really. Um, people write me all the time and say that the stuff that Seth communicates helps them in their daily life, helps them plan long term, helps them reframe the way they look at the world. That's what conversations with Seth do for me. So while I'm away on vacation, I thought that uh, a best of conversation, which we, uh, you know picks from these three episodes to give you one episode in case you've missed them, uh, would be like a, a great thing for you to have and listen to, and then might make you want to dive deeper into Seth's work or into these podcasts or find Seth on a, a bunch of other podcasts. Uh, well, I think the episode he did with Tim Ferriss is particularly great. So uh, enjoy this, and I'll be back soon with a new show. This episode was edited by my new producer, Jordan Bell. Jason DeLeon, who has produced the show from pretty much the beginning, uh, is now in a much larger role with Panoply Slate World, and uh, Jordan is stepping into the breach, and she's doing a great job. Enjoy this episode, and as always, you can give me feedback at the moment, bk at gmail.com. Even on vacation, I can't stop myself from reading them emails. Are you going to mess things up? No, it's great. Okay. Come in, sit. I was just saying that you're a huge cultural influencer. Um, and that uh, you've done these incredible TED Talks, that you've written all these bestsellers. And I was going to say that uh, your work has influenced me a lot. And uh, in the way uh, I think about communicating and in examining the reasons for communicating. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank and you. I really appreciate your being here. So you asked what this is all about. Like the, the thing that I, you know, you and I had this conversation before I started a podcast where I came to you and, and asked you for some advice about different things because I really love the way you think and uh, articulate those thoughts. Um, and I, in drilling down, I realized that what really animates me is um, figuring out how people who accomplish remarkable things process the big moments in their lives. Mm -hmm. Because you can do case studies and you can learn... I think from that and because there are, I think if you investigate it sort of deeply and widely enough, you can find patterns that you can apply across various different areas. Yeah, for sure. And you're someone who has spent a lot of time trying things, failing, learning, succeeding. And that's why I thought you'd be a great person to, to talk to. And that's, and that covers a, a lot of terrain, right? Cause there's sure. success and failure and, all sorts of different areas. And so you were just asking about uh, success and defining it. The first question that I wrote down, um, and I, I don't really stick to what I've written down, but it's a good place to, to jump off in a way, um, is how did you, Seth, begin the process of um, deciding what really mattered to you? I think that uh, most people go through two processes. There's the first naive process that happens before we are aware we're having this conversation, often when we're a teenager or even younger. And that is uh, a much more almost mindful way to go about it because you're not having a narrative about, should I have a conversation about what's important to me? You're just living. And so I think that early events, parents, the culture we grow up in informs a lot of what we think of as what matters. What we're going to do, right. But I'm wondering, I wonder if that, you you almost framed it like that's more pure in a way, but I wonder, I wonder if that's reactive as opposed to, I wonder if that initial burst of things that matter after, you know, you're very young, food and your parents' sure. love, right? I mean, your parents' love is something you end up becoming reactive to also, but I what I wonder is if before you... Most people, I think, don't even go past that reactive exactly. stage. So that, where I'm going, first of all, well, let's, yes. I got to bring in a little Zig here. Zig Ziglar famously talked about the difference between react and respond. The doctor says you're responding to the medicine. That's good. If she says you're reacting, that's bad. So there's some baggage with the word reactive. 
I think it's responsive. I think that the way most of us grow up, we are responding to inputs. We are not just sitting there with a blank sheet of paper having a Sartre-like internal dialogue, right? So that's a, a big factor in everybody's life. Some people then decide to have a second discussion with themselves. And that discussion is, all right, like Kal-El, I'm on this planet and I've got a head start. Right? I have powers far beyond those of many other people. I am very lucky I didn't grow up in a slum. I'm very lucky it's not 1642. I'm very lucky that I had all these advantages. There's nothing physically much wrong with me. So when you realize all that, then you sometimes are lucky enough to have a conversation with yourself that might last for decades that says, well, what game do I want to play? How am I going to keep score? And what's important? So what happened for me uh, is I was an entrepreneur from the time I was 14, ran a business when I was in college. That got me into Stanford as, as one of the younger people at the business school. And right about then, I said, all right, well, there are these tools that are becoming available to me. Do I want to go work for Bain and McKinsey? Right. Is it important? I'm surrounded by people who are a couple years older than me, all of whom are more su successful than me on many metrics. Do I want to make more money than them? Do I want to fly around the world? Do I want people to to uh, look at me with respect? How do you, I make that decision? And that summer job is a very important summer job. It's only a two-year program. Where will you work this summer? If, to go even slightly more granular into that process, that moment for you of, deci of decision, of recognition and then decision, what kind of steps did you take in figuring that out? I mean, were you just walking around uh, sort of daydreaming? Did you start journaling? Did you, like, what happened that helped you frame, okay, there, I'm at, I mean, you knew you were at Stanford, you were a bright person, but what sort of tangible steps did you take to lay this all out for yourself, if any? Well, so I guess it started uh, a year or so before that. I had been spending a couple of years just being unhappy about various cycles that I would remind myself that weren't working. Those people aren't respecting you. Your social life is inadequate. Oh, there it is again. Right? So I went for six years in a row. Every time I ran for any student government post, I lost every single time. Right? I mean, there, you could keep track of these things if you wanted to. Right. Six years. It's important to note that's a long time yeah. to be repeating this pattern. Yeah, well, I didn't start repeating it until a few years into it, but it was certainly at least two years of me saying, oh, there it goes again, kind of thing. And I, I went for a very long uh, car ride to visit my sister in North Carolina from Boston. And I carpooled with somebody who was depressive. And so we had like nine hours in the car to right. talk. And I saw sort of an example of what that self-talk could lead to because she was self-talking even more than I was self-talking. And she was a depressive, so she was self-talking into a downward spiral. Right, exactly. And you noticed it. Oh, yeah. That was a big moment of distinction for you. That's right. And the, the good, you know, I grew up with ADD. Being in a car for nine hours, it forces you to focus. You'll get killed on the road. And you, you can only do one thing, which is, you know, drive, two things, drive and talk to the person next to you. So I did. And got down to visit my sister and was sufficiently open to the world, tired, and uh, moved by that conversation that the next day, because my sister didn't want to spend the whole day with me, there was just a long walk around the campus. And like, oh, that, yeah, that thing, you're doing it again. Just stop doing that. And having a conversation with myself that said, I want to be in charge of this internal monologue. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great. I only have ever said this out loud. You're that, a great interviewer. Thank you. That's that's. I'm very curious. So that's that's um, that moment, uh, which was a pattern interrupt, right? That's what people would call that a pattern interrupt. Sure. And you were able to recognize and do it to yourself. And when you did that, what was the message you replaced the? Because the first thing is to interrupt the pattern, and the second thing is the new message. Right. What was the new message? Well. I would say that the new message didn't happen the same day. Oh, of course, right. Right? The, the first thing you say is, uh, and this is classic cognitive behavioral therapy, which I didn't know at the time, uh, 
which I strongly recommend to anybody who's in a rut. You don't have to go very many times, but it's really a useful tool. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, as opposed to psychotherapy, which there are purposes for, for, for which psychotherapy is incredibly valuable, but for certain things, patterns especially, OCD right. type things, uh, there are ways that cognitive behavioral therapy uh, really interrupts patterns and teaches you new behaviors, which shockingly, to people who don't expect this, change the way you think yeah. for the better. Um, it's true. Yeah. And I, the simple example that I tell people, friend uh, had a five-year-old who had significant OCD. He was washing his hands for five hours a day at the sink. It turns out that in that particular case of OCD, there's seven seconds during which it is an insurmountable, uncontrollable urge. And if you can get through seven seconds, it will go away. So all that they had to do is make a game. So every time the kid felt like washing his hands, they did something, I don't remember what it was, that stalled for 11 seconds, and then he didn't want to wash his hands anymore. And they replaced one pattern with another pattern, which freed him to create a whole new uh, explanation in his own mind about why he needed to wash hands. What's, what's so powerful about that is that it seems, it, it almost seems like what you're saying is too simple to be true. That's why people, cognitive behavioral therapy is weird to people, because it's so basic. It's like playing with blocks in a way. But, and, and especially when behaviors become so entrenched, the person um, whose behavior is thusly entrenched can't imagine there's a simple solve. Right. Because they feel in the, in the grips of that seven seconds over and over again. It doesn't feel like seven seconds. Right. Of course. Because it's repeated. Right. I've seen it with people who, uh, with whom I'm distantly related. That's why I know about it too. I dove in and I saw the same result that, that you saw. All right, so here's the big... But let's go back well, to... So I have to just yes. say the most profound part of our whole talk here. Uh, we're in ESPN Studios. And in ESPN Studios, what happens is play-by-play. Play, that something is going on on the field and Howard Cosell or Danny Don Meredith or whoever is doing it these days describes the play on the field. Everyone understands this. What would happen if all we did was broadcast a TV thing and delay the video by four seconds? Keep the audio, delay the video by four seconds. Here's what would happen. The play-by-play -play announcer would say, Jim Kelly back in the pocket going to pass. And then you would see Jim Kelly go back in the pocket and go back to pass. That would be so weird, right? We expect that what the play-by-play -play does is tell us after. Our brains it turns out, work exactly the same way. And Dan Dennett has written about this brilliantly, Professor Tufts, you can read the data. Um, the, the voice in our head, the one that tells us we're, what we are about to decide to do next, says it after we have already decided. It says, oh, I'm sort of hungry, after our body has already decided we are hungry, not before. We don't get to say something in that voice in our head and then do it. We do it and then we make an explanation afterwards, a microsecond afterwards, to explain that to ourselves that we're not crazy, right? So someone cuts you off in traffic, you lean on the horn, you think that what happened was you said to yourself, that jerk, I'm going to, no, actually you decided to honk and then you made up a whole narrative. Once you do that, this is so freeing to understand because what it means is all the narrative is what drives you crazy. It's all invented. You don't have to have the narrative if you don't want to have the narrative. And you can change, you can actually, if you're aware of it, you can change the narrative. You know, Josh Waitzkin talks about in his in his book, The Art of Learning. I don't know if you've ever read it. Book. Waitzkin is the guy searching for Bobby Fischer is about. Mm -hmm. But his life didn't stop when the movie sure. stopped. And he became a world champion at uh, martial, a certain kind of martial arts. And, and he's a brilliant person. And um, in, in his book, he talks about when you compound a mistake by being by reacting and letting that voice change, when you let that voice drive the narrative, it leads Correct. to um, reaffirming behavior. Correct behavior that reaffirms that that first bad choice. Because if um, if I was if I was right to make the first bad choice, I have to double down. Right, and that if we can just interrupt that pattern, exactly. we can save ourselves a tremendous amount of time and hurt. Exactly. His books, you would love his book. I'm going to check it's it out. It's brilliant and carefully written. So that leads to the thing I saw online two days ago that made me think of you, not because you were in it, but because people who want to be you were in it. Um, the Academy made this video of interviewing a whole bunch of screenwriters in coffee shops. Oh, that's cool. And 
they might be really talented, but there's no way to tell from the video. What you can tell from the video is that they're in love with being struggling screenwriters. And they are making choices every day to continue to be struggling screenwriters. How, what gave that away to you? Well, it's tribal behavior. It's the the mantra of the, you know, I'm on my 44th screenplay kind of thing, telling the story, rehearsing the story of, I am a struggling screenwriter. Look around the coffee shop. We're all here in this together. That's who we yes. are. Like you, I'm a skeptic of uh, a lot of self-help and a lot of uh, carny games. But one of the great, to me, Anthony Robbins has a lot of, says a lot of things that are true because he's mm -hmm. done a lot of work to figure it out. Sure. And he constantly talks about the story we tell ourselves. Yeah. And it's one of the truest things. And I see it uh, I see it online as I interact with people in this area of trying to help them unlock their creativity, which is something you care a lot about also. It's that they'll you'll say to them, Here's why um saying I ha here's why saying um asking the question, how do I get an agent is the wrong question. Here are the things you have to do um to your work and to yourself to make to flip the equation and to make it that an agent is asking the question, how do I find that person? Correct. And you'll go through the whole thing and you'll back it up with evidence, narrative, your own story, another person's story, yep. and you'll get to the end and they'll say, right. But how do I get an but agent? How do I get an agent? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the, the other part of the narrative is this stupid industry, it doesn't like buying things like I write from people like me. And if that's true, switch industries, as opposed to living out this public lesson that's not making anybody happy and making you miserable. Especially now, but I, I, especially now when there, when um, the industry is only there is no reason in the world to accept the um, the common wisdom about what defines the industry. Sure. Uh, because all you need to do is uh, a piece of work that connects with some group of people, and you need to get it to those people. And, and that, you need to get it to three of those people, they'll get it to the rest. Well, I've seen it. I mean, uh, we've both seen this play out in life, but, it, you know, when people um, look, when, I mean, you're better at understanding this. You've spent a lifetime chasing this. I mean, what do you think prevent, what's the pain that people find what is it that people find so painful in the kind of change required to drop that story? We, our ancestors, have been here for millions of years. The only way that our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents existed long enough to have children was to avoid change. That That is the key element of success in the survival of species is creatures that expose themselves to unpredictable change become extinct and creatures that find a safe sinecure have more kids. So that's about as hardwired as we've got. And so, you know, I, I tell the story of you have a, a, a degree in aeronautical engineering. You know that no plane in history has crashed because of turbulence at 30,000 feet. Never once. You're on the plane. You're writing an important memo. The plane hits turbulence. What do you do? Well, what you do is you close the laptop and use your entire force of will to keep the plane aloft. Lucky for everyone else that you were on the plane to do that, because otherwise it would have gone down. You know it's not doing any good. You just paid to go on a roller coaster last week. Enjoy it, as my friend John Dale says. You're in turbulence. You know nothing bad's going to happen. Enjoy that moment, but we can't, because that moment represents change, and change represents threat, and threat represents fear, and so we... It's a version of fight or flight, which, uh, exactly. you know, people say, talk to athletes about performance and controlling through breathing, even, the, the, the release of the chemicals, which, which then um, manifests in the narrative that has to satisfy the, right. the chemical. And surge. so what people like you have and what people like me have is we have redefined change. And so I would be miserable if someone made me move to Cleveland, Paris, some beautiful city. It doesn't matter what, where, because that's not the kind of change I signed up for. I do my best work with that certain pattern. But I would also be miserable if I had to write the same blog post every single day and have a boss because I've defined change in a way that says that's just a rhythm and that rhythm of projects, one project after another project, that's what fuels me. But I don't view it the way other people view change, those changes. I view those changes like breathing. 
you know, your first time on here, um, doing the moment with me early on in the show's life, it remains the episode I'm asked about the most frequently and that people thank me for. And I know that's because um, of a bunch of the stuff you said. So thanks for doing this again. It's actually a pleasure. It really has been fabulous to get to know you. And we've had off-microphone conversations that were even better than the ones on the air. No, it's true. Um, uh, I asked John Acuff what he'd want me to ask you, and I'll tell you what he okay. said. But one of the questions was that you say you said on the last podcast Twitter wouldn't be good for you. And he didn't understand what you meant by oh, that because he thinks you'd be great what, at it. This is not what, that's not the part of Twitter that would be bad for me. So I will explain that part. The reason Twitter is bad for me, really bad for me, is I have a significant challenge with anonymous trolling. Right. Yeah, you said that last time. That is, so it's about the crit it's about dealing with what you know it creates some emotional turmoil with hearing bad stuff. Right. You can't use Twitter without reading what people are saying back. No, you have to read and what they say back. That I would just between that and the ADD, I'd be like in this in the middle of this interview, You'd I'd be, be checking and I'm like, well, I don't tweeting. need any of that. What Norm does though, I just tell you, I don't know, do you know what he does? No. What He'll take um, a Sunday afternoon golf tournament and he will live tweet every shot for five hours. Wow. And is he doing it ironically? You, I, you tell me. He's doing it. And it's fantastic. Oh, but so each tweet is a, isn't just like, like matching up the soundtrack of Wizard of Oz to some Pink Floyd it's, album. It's, he is commenting on every shot wow. played on television. Good for him. For four hours. Yeah. And at first, and it's one of those things, you know, the performance art piece where for the first five minutes, you're like, I'm going to, I got to, I got to mute the guy. Right. But a half hour in, you know, you're riveted and he's, he is totally taken charge. People who've never watched golf, who sure. don't care about Norm Good before, how, and he's turned it in a way where when he's going to do that, like emails start going around to people and Norm's doing this and it becomes like right. an incredible kind of filibuster. Yeah. And you wonder was that how much conscious thought went into that. You, you, I'll tell you when he's doing it. You can watch for 10 minutes next time. I'm in. Yeah, I'm it's in. a great thing, though. It's a really fun thing. But, and, and there are some people, I'll send you some stuff, because there's some people who are doing it on politics now, too. But we're getting, that gets off the... We the, are. I want to just put one more insert, and then you go back to your list. Go. Uh, I'm not mentoring you. I never have mentored you. Well... I would say... I'm your friend. And yes, what we're friends. And what I do as a friend, which is different than what some people do as a friend, yes. is if you ask me to come paint your house, I might say yes. But if you ask me about something that you're wrestling with, nothing makes me feel more connected to somebody than being able to talk about it. Yeah. But, right? I, but we are... I yes, am, we're peers. No, we are totally peers. If anything, I'm trying to catch up to your insight. No, we're... Thank you. That's nice of you to say. No, we're peers. But um, because, as you know, people... Because people... There aren't that many people that I can go to who've had experience in, in a way that I haven't had and who will, I know, offer me the most clear-eyed advice that they can. Well, thank you. And so for, let's talk about it. You know, we're on a podcast and I think, you know, yesterday a kid came to see me and uh, told me that he... He really wanted uh, to be in the movie, in movies and TV, and I agreed to see him. He was a friend of a friend, um, and he told me he was writing comedies. And I had to tell him we spent twenty minutes together. He wasn't. He had made me laugh. <laughs> I said, "You know, are you sure comedy is what you want to do?" But we're, uh, at the end, my wife showed up, and we we're with with this kid, and he said that he went to Madison. And Amy remembered that Jill Soloway, who created, sure. you know, the incredible show um, uh, on Amazon, that Jill Soloway went to Madison, too. And she said to him, um, you know, you should reach out to Jill Soloway. You should, you, and this kid was telling me, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. He's probably listening. and I'll do anything. And he said, I wouldn't know where to start. How would somebody do that? What would, he was, he's 30, so I'm saying kid, but he's 29 years old. And so this is what led me to, like, like, obviously he knows that you can tweet, find an email, write a letter, call an alumni office. There's 40 things that... That's not even his problem. His problem is he likes being an unsuccessful creator of writing. Yes, you he talked about the Starbucks that. people last right. time. But 
how do you think people, uh, what's the comfort in that? Oh, the comfort is fabulous. It's fabulous because the story you get to carry around with you is bulletproof. It's insulation. It's the outside world doesn't understand me. The outside world is against me. The outside world won't give me a break. If only they would, then my genius would come out. But right now, I'm just an outsider. And as long as you're carrying that around, you are safe. It has completely transferred all the responsibility to someone who is not you. And so when you say to somebody, which is what I usually say to people who are uh, nonfiction writers or even fiction writers, finish your first book and then email it in a nicely laid out PDF to 100 people. Just give it away. If it's good, it'll get to 10,000 people and then you'll have no trouble selling your second book. If it's not good, it's a good thing you gave it away because no one's going to publish it anyway. Right? right. And not one person has taken this advice. Not one. Because as long as you are carrying around your not very good novel and no agent will represent you and no publisher will publish you, you're safe. Yeah, it's very hard. I think that that's right. Uh, that's right. But the story is so intractable that people tell themselves. You know, I told myself the story. We've all told ourselves sure. a version of, of that story. Yeah. That you wonder sometimes what it will take for them to allow themselves the chance at actually being happy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You just put a whole bunch of, of stuff on that person that they didn't ask you to put. Well, they, they might be happy they right did. now. No, they, tell you that they don't tell you they're miserable within the first... But saying that they're miserable makes them happy. <laughs> Fine. The semantics are very important here. Nobody follows one of these paths consistently with consistent choices unless those consistent choices are taking them to a place that at some level they want to be. They well, could change the choices. It's not like they have a chemical dependency. Well, yeah. I mean, people would say that they've, um, they've trained their physiology to react to it, actually. That sure. it gives them, it's the pellet to the rat. It's right. what they actually need to feel like themselves. Yes. So there isn't like a little homunculus that's making these rational choices. Their whole body is making the choice. But the point is that part of the action is coming up to semi-strangers and asking them for the key to the Emerald City. And then when you give it to them, they somehow drop it. That. Right. Right. So that, does that drive you crazy? Is that, do you, no, because that... that's why I don't do any coaching or consulting. Because I figure if someone hires me to be a consultant, they want me to solve their problem. And I can't solve their problem. All I can do is turn on some lights so they can solve their own problem. And I'm much happier doing that for large numbers of people as widely as I can than to have to sit with one person and be their therapist at the same time. So what I'm saying to people is, you know what? Here's a microphone. If you want to talk, talk. If you want to sing, sing. I can point to the story of Amanda Palmer. I can point to the story of Steve Pressfield. I can tell them to read this. Their paths are well lit, that, that way more lit than you and I had to deal with a long time ago, right? For sure. And so... It doesn't mean they're easy. It doesn't mean they're not uphill. It doesn't mean they work for everyone. It doesn't mean there aren't people with less talent who are getting more than you, because there are. All it means is there's a lot of randomness going on in this. You, you, the lottery tickets don't cost that much, but if you don't buy lottery tickets, you can't win. And the work is refusing to follow the person who came before you. The work is going to an edge that makes you interesting enough that you're not just a work for hire. Well, yeah, when you said, so yes, this brings us back. When you said you're not a mentor and I appreciate the distinction, you know, you gave me just the, the best advice about this show, which was, and, and it's a question I want to ask you, which is how did you learn not to chase the shiny thing? You know, we all chase the shiny thing. We don't, and, and sometimes we don't realize we were chasing the shiny thing until we have it. But uh, there was a moment at the beginning of this when it was starting to, I was starting to, you know, g gain an audience that I could tell was reacting. And we were, you know, some people are listening on Slate and they're newer if they're listening in the Slate feed. But the people who are listening on my, you know, the moment with Brian Cobbleman feed, they've been listening for a year and a half or two years. Thanks, guys. They have, which is great. And they have a real, we have a real relationship. And there was a moment where I was feeling pressure to book more famous guests people were offering those guests to me and where I could have taken the show and done other things with it. And you said, 
And it was great. You said, like, remember why you do the show, why you wanted to do this. And then you said, what if you just concentrate on doing the best version of that show, the show that you want with only people in the chair that you absolutely need in the chair? And it was the clarifying thing that I think made me now know that, like, um, I'll, ne- man, I'll never have the biggest podcast, and I don't, I don't care about it, but I'll have, uh, hopefully, be able to engage in conversations that, um, that I care about so much, that the person sitting across from me cares about so much, that, that people listening will feel it and know that we're not bullshitting. I don't know, you, that was your counsel to me. So it may not have the formal structure of a mentorship, but that was a moment of mentorship, right? Friendship. I Friendship. Um, so when I was in high school, I ran five different times to win one election or another, and I lost every single time. And then I promised I wouldn't run for anything else, and I got to college, and there was some storm thing or whatever, and I was unopposed, and I lost. <laughs> you lost unopposed. Yeah. We went to the same college at uh, different times. Yes. Yeah. And... Uh, and I wish I had known you then. We were only a year apart, two years apart. Anyway. No, no, we were six years apart. Six years, so I couldn't yeah. have known you. Anyway, um, so then I got to Stanford Business School, and I was the second youngest person in the class. And a whole bunch of people who had worked two years, horrible years, in an investment bank as an intern came up to me and said, ooh, you're in trouble. You're way too inexperienced to be here. So there was this narrative going on, which is I needed to be popular. I needed to win the shiny prize. I needed to show people that. And, uh, you know, saying it, it's sort of weird to say it now because most people view Stanford as the shiny prize. But within every place, there's the pecking order, right? I was at the bottom of that pecking order. And something clicked inside. Um, I got a job uh, for the summer as assistant to the president of Activision which was the fastest growing company in the history of the world at the time. And I was going to like sit in his office and be Jim's assistant. And then my wife, who hadn't been my wife yet, called and said, I'm not coming to California for the summer. So I had to turn down that job and go find something in Boston. And the job I got in Boston wasn't at Lotus. It almost was. Wasn't at Infocom. They offered me the job and then they took it back. It was at this little company no one had ever heard of. And a light flipped on for me, which is I was way happier working on something that no one had ever heard of, where I could do this work where I say, I made this, than being some, you know, gopher at Apple, which in 1985 would have been, you know, an interesting place to be. Uh, and ever since then, in the, in the book publishing world, in the entrepreneurial world, in the internet world, you know, my internet company... When I was building it, 96, 97, everyone's web, 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 web. And I was like, I don't think so. Email, email, email. And I probably would have won bigger if I had built yet another web company. But the fact that I could lead a group of people and craft something that was on the edge, that felt more like me. And so I still get distracted by the shiny things in the way that, because the media wants us to. But I work very hard to say, I'm not picking that. Let somebody else play that game. Yeah, when you say you work hard at it, how? How do you how do you try to recognize when you know what Pressfield says? Look and listen for which is on the higher. I mean, he says spiritual plane. um, But Pressfield talks about yeah the higher the higher plane. Which thing is um more true to your calling? That's not always uh, always easy to to know. Right. Right. Because any especially for, for you because. Any of these things you can tell yourself are also helping people. You can right. tell yourself all of it is helping people, right? It all is, because you know why? Because it all is helping people. You're doing, I mean, you're giving, you hear back from them. So here's, so how do you figure some, it out? Some of, some of the hard work. Uh, is my agent more famous than yours? Am I outranking you on the uh, Amazon bestseller list? How much traffic came to my blog yesterday, the month before, compared to six months before that? Uh, how big an advance did I get compared to Malcolm Gladwell? But I don't keep track of any of those things. I have no idea on purpose because that's what, huge. Once you head down that thing, you have grievances. Well, this is reassurance again. So you're committed to not getting that reassurance, right? And so you're naked, but you also want to air your grievances. Someone steals your idea and does great things with it. You want to air those grievances, but I don't. I'm saying no. 
Good for you. Steal more of my ideas. You got a $2 million advance for your first book? Fabulous. I'm very happy for you. Because if I keep track of those things, I will want to make them go up. Right. And, and you know, the, I got to see this more clearly than most because in 1999, 2000, before the internet bubble burst, I was a free agent who had just come off selling his company. I could have picked any project. And Bill Gross, who's a fabulous idea guy, came to me and offered me $1 billion in stock options to join his company. And I said to myself when I turned it down, this is great because never again do I have to worry about whether I'm turning down too good a deal because this is the best deal I'm ever going to get offered and I turned it down. And then the bubble burst and my billion dollars was worth zero. So it worked out, but it got me out of the habit of saying, compare and chase and have grievances. Instead, I'm saying, compared to what I would have done if I had pushed myself harder, compared to what I would have done if I was braver, does this piece of work stand up? Am I building more trust and more connection with this, or did I try to take a shortcut? That's what I'm comparing myself to. You've decided to release a compendium of your work, this you know incredible blog that you do. You've decided to release a giant, gorgeous book, and you've done it in a way that people don't usually release books. Can you just talk about that for a second? And then I have a question about it. So the book's called, uh, What Does It Sound Like When You Change Your Mind? And it's the best of my blog, my eBooks, and my Medium posts from the last four years. This is the second time I've done it. The last one, we made 2,500 copies. Why do I do it? It's certainly not a profitable, cost-efficient thing to do. Uh, it weighs as much as 15 books. It's 800 pages long. It's four-color. Uh, you have to use container ships to get it from the printer to the people. I do it because, A... I love books. Books matter to me. Just the format reminds me of so many things that are important. So I don't want my work, my electronic work, to just float away into the ether. I like the idea that it's got a footprint. And the second thing is that I think that books carry with them so much Proustian baggage in the best possible way, that we expect something from a book. We don't expect to swipe right or swipe left or just delete it. We expect it to be part of what we're trying to do. I think a book can change us. I think a book opens the door for a different kind of thinking. And I think if you have a book that changes you and you hand it to someone else, it can change them. And that's a really powerful tool because I'm in the change business. I've also heard you talk about the pain associated with books, with traditional publishing models, with pouring one's heart into into books only to have the distribution chain let you down or the fact of people not buying uh, hard copy books let you down and i think it it gets at the heart of of something that there are a couple ways one can react to it so you announced you weren't going to write any more books at one point and so that's one way. And then another way is to go, in fact, what I'm going to do is write the, like, put out the biggest, most impractical book ever. It's a, in a wonderfully perverse reaction to deciding that in certain ways, books are dead. Yeah, perverse is, is a great way to put it. Here's the deal. The 500-year-old tradition of book publishers and bookstores was a magical parenthesis in time that Gutenberg caused, that there was an industry that supported individuals who wanted to do this. There was a retail environment where you could go and say, I am here to buy a thing that will change me. That doesn't exist as much as it used to. But one of the underpinnings of commercial printing is infinity. That what you need to do, if you want to make it as a commercial publisher, is you need Catcher in the Rye. You need Brene Brown. You need a book that sells and sells and sells and sells. Well, I'm very focused on making sure that I'm in sync with my partners and not disappointing them. So the problem is that whenever you bring a book to a publisher, inevitably, there's going to be the moment of disappointment when it runs out of steam. Sure. Right? You're making a really right. interesting point, though. So yeah. whenever you hand something, because this goes right to the heart of anyone who creates anything. So Most is, things. Okay. There are certain topics where it's not true. So if you're a restaurateur and there's 10 seats at the, ta at the bar and there's only 10 covers, 
you can be full. You can't serve any more people. Well, you're disappointed, but your disappointment comes somewhat can can occur somewhere else down the chain. The peaches didn't come in the right way. The sous chef didn't notice Not it. Not buying it. Totally different kind of disappointment. That one of the things that happens, for example, in the food business, and I know you pay attention to this, is the culture says, oh, great, you're successful. Now you need to open another restaurant. Well, by definition, now you have a building that you're not in. So now you're no longer cooking food for the people. You're implementing that. Yes. And now you have to get bigger. And then you have to go public, blah, blah, blah. When in fact, that's none of the th reasons you went into the business in the first place. So for me, with this big book, I'm only printing 6,500. I'm not printing anymore. I'm done. So now- 6,500 copies of this book. That's, that's all it. there are. And so now I don't have to say, where can I sell this? Where can I promote this? How can I get Brian to put me on his podcast? Because they're all going to sell. I don't have to worry about it. It's like I made an artifact. I'm sharing the artifact with people who are paying attention. I hope that the artifact will be seen as the gift I meant it to be. And then I'm going to go do the next thing. And I can't engage a commercial publisher in that partnership because the commercial publisher needs to go to their customer, who's not the reader, but the bookstore, get them all excited, but they're all bleeding every day anyway. Then the bookstore plus the media people have to get the world excited. And all of that work I discovered gives me no joy. And so I, that's the work I don't want to do. But, but I guess I'm saying, well, I understand that. And I understand the reasons that this particular book makes sense to you. But I guess part of what I'm talking about is that I think we all who are engaged in trying to create something that represents the best of ourselves at times manufacture disappointment. Yes. And so a chef, like I can go with David Chang to one of his restaurants who's been on the podcast and talked about this. And even with all the happy faces that he right. does get, if the peach I'm talking about isn't exactly right and he notices it because he walked into his joint and it's on the third table from the let one person that can stay with him for that disappointment could make him go. It's not fucking worth it to have restaurants. That's his fuel, right? But my, I, I'm making a distinction that I think is relevant to most people who are listening, which is social media is also based on infinity. So if you look at how many Facebook shares you got, if you look at how many Twitter followers you have, you have just enrolled in exactly the wrong dialogue with yourself. That the thing about the peach is the reason I came to the restaurant is to eat the peach. But I didn't read your blog post or your tweet so that other people would read it. So they're two different things, right? right? So what I stopped doing a few years ago, I don't read my Amazon reviews. I don't look at my Google Analytics. I have no idea whether my subscriber base is going up or down. I don't know what the buzz is about something I did on Facebook because none of those things helped me do better work. It's interesting. On the drive up here, I was thinking about the word certainty for some reason, and I uh -huh. wanted to ask you about certainty because there's this idea that we have to throw ourselves, I think, into uncertainty to create stuff, which can lead to disappointment if, depending on the expectations that we have. Right. Yet, you're creating a kind of certainty, uh, areas that you know you won't find disappointment because you choose not to engage in those areas. Well, I guess, you know, I also don't know if there's suffering on Alpha Centauri's planets, Right. There might be. You've made a choice. I'm unaware. And being unaware is different than certainty. So, I w But let's dive into certainty, because I think that that's yeah. at the heart of this creativity thing. Bob Dylan wrote some of the most important songs of all time, usually in 15 minutes each. Leonard Cohen, as you and I were talking about the other day, wrote Hallelujah in six, eight years. What's the difference, right? Is it that Bob Dylan has a different clock speed, or is it that... A creator who's stuck is stuck because they are seeking certainty that cannot be found, that they are in their own head, focus grouping it, imagining it that's failure. Well, it's, it's the imaginary in their own. It's, I think it's that's important right. for you to repeat that in their own head, focus grouping it. They're not that's actually right. focus grouping exactly. it because they'd have to finish the work in order to focus. Group exactly. It. You're saying that it is, I mean, it's the thing Julia Cameron talks about. It's the thing that I've, uh, you know, that, that haunted me when I, I was younger and that I still have to defeat every morning when I try to do the good work. You're talking about turning off the internal sensors and, and the, the inventions of judgment. And why do we invent judgment? We invent judgment for the same reason that a chef is angry at a peach. And the reason is we think it's fuel, but it's not fuel. It's sabotage.
So half of Miles Davis's albums are below average, and only two or three of them are albums for the ages. But if he had waited for the album of the age to show up, then we never would have heard it. But it's really hard in a world of in a in a in a culture of swift judgment, right? There's this long judgment that happens that has to do with what's canonical or not. There's this judgment that can happen over time if I pass a book to you and you pass it to somebody else, pre-canonical, but still sort of like viral, uh, a kind of viral. But there's an immediate snapping shut now of possibility. Uh, Completely untrue. That is a in, fiction. But it's, it's a what it, figment of the... Uh, but it's of the collective imagination. Of many people's imagination. That's what I'm talking but about. But in fact... yeah. You know, it used to be there were only 12 book editors in New York City, and if you didn't get them, you weren't going to make it as a literary author. It used to be that the salons in Paris 100 years ago, if you failed there, there was going to be this huge glitch. Now, it's just oozing through every corner and angle. So, so when Eric Raymond wrote The Cathedral and the Bazaar 15 years ago, that sort of opened the door to what became Wikipedia and everything else— Almost no one read it at the beginning, and almost everyone who read it at the beginning didn't get it. When Kevin Kelly launched one of his books 15 years ago that predicted the entire future of the internet, it wasn't a bestseller. I read it. Almost no one else did. What an incredible unfair advantage I had. He gave me a roadmap, right? right? Yeah. If Kevin was waiting for applause, he would have never done what he's done his magnificent career. My point is, the internet is filled with hate if you look for it, if you measure it, but it is the best publishing platform ever invented for someone who wants to keep publishing. So how do you train yourself? You're an incredibly disciplined person. You know, anyone who knows you well knows that. How does one train oneself, though, to put on the kind of blinders you're talking about? Because one thing I noticed, we got really lucky on uh, our our TV show um, in that most of the critics liked it and people liked it. But I've noticed that their critics now in all these fields communicate with each other. As you know, Twitter is separated now into there's political Twitter, there's television Twitter, there's film Twitter, not officially, but all these people self-define. You define uh, many people, uh, uh, sort of thought leaders in quotes, define themselves uh, and define their affinity group within the social media world. And so- you can see how if these people are all... It used to be that the critics were really forming, at first, their own opinion. They had to. They were at their pay. Right. They, they may have been manipulated and all that stuff, right? Sure. It may not have been pure, pure. It was hard for them to sync up in right. real time. Hard to know ahead of time what the collective opinion was going to be. Correct. That's just not the case anymore. If you're engaging, how do you train yourself not to engage? So many different ways to go at this. Let me start with this. It's easy to not understand or embrace the idea of enrollment, but I want to take it apart. Education. Education can no longer be done to people. It has to be done with them. That a kid is now capable of sitting through almost any class and not getting it, because if they don't want to get it, they're not going to get it. But if you're into baseball cards or into Magic the Gathering or into Game of Thrones, because you're into it, because you're enrolled in this journey, it's done with you. And you eagerly suck it all up. Like the Harvey Milk idea. Let me enlist you in a way. Enlist you in the journey, not tell you, but bring you along. That's right. And so if you are a creator and you have followers who are enrolled in where you are going, the critics do not matter at all. And that goal of finding enrollment, you succeed at that by making a different kind of work than chasing what the critics are into right now. And so if we look at how could Star Wars possibly have made it through the valley of bad movies and then come out at the other end with a billion-dollar hit, well, because through the valley, the people who were enrolled in where Star Wars was supposed to go stuck with it, right? At the beginning, you have to make the first movie in a way that gets strangers to say, yeah, you're going where I want to go. Do you think the most common mistake, though, is aiming for where you think the critics are going to be? Or do you think the common mistake is becoming paralyzed because you're afraid of where it's going to be. Because I, right, I think it's the, same. the fear. Well, they're, they're, they're the same. Only one produces, one at least produces some result. Right. And the other produces no result. And 
and I think they're sli- they're yes, they're, they're slightly different. Here's what happens: it always begins with paralysis, and yes. then the only way out, the only way out, is say, "Well, wait, I found the, the needle. Let's thread this thing because that will lead us to where we want to go." And if we can't find that needle, then we then we're stuck. And it always begins with paralysis for pretty much right. all of us, by the way. Yeah, almost all of us. That's right. Even the people who are working every day, right, producing. Like uh, real content that have an audience, correct? Face that paralysis. So we begin with the question: Who is it for? And if you can't tell me who it's for, then you either have to say it's only for me and not care at all about commercial success, or you have to be able to work yourself forward to say it's for those people, it's not for these people. So if you're going to a Dylan concert, yelling "Lay, Lady, Lay," play it just like it's on the record, Bob says to himself, "It's not for you." And you're going to leave that concert disappointed, fine with him. And that's got to be what we do in a world where anyone can publish, therefore anyone will publish. The only way to get your fair share or more of attention is to have enrollment. But it leads to this problem of freedom, which leads to this myth of writer's block. There's no such thing as writer's block, right? Writer's block is merely the combination of two things. One, bad habits combined with two, fear of what someone else who's not on the journey is going to say to you. When those two things combine in your head, it's easier to be paralyzed. It's easier to do nothing. And so my suggestion is, and I mentioned this to you the other day, you know, mise en place is its own reward. Mise en place is when the chef lines up all the ingredients, pre-cut, ready to go, so that when the things are fired up, you just cook. Well, My friend Isaac Asimov, who published 400 books before he died, Isaac got up every single morning. Uh, He used to live near the Lincoln Center. He sat in front of a manual typewriter, and he typed for five hours. And if he didn't have anything to say, he still typed. And that's the answer to having enough good ideas. You have to have bad ideas. Yeah, Eddie Burns, who was a a podcast guest about a year and a half ago, who's just made many, many movies of all different size. He's able to four hours, no matter what, he's typing for four hours and he doesn't care about the quality till later, tomorrow, right. the next exactly. afternoon. And um, and if people want to know about uh, Mise en Place, uh, Bill Buford's book, Heat, is excellent because he has to man that station at some point. Right. And he really talks about it. It says uh, he got to be in Batali's kitchen. And it's very, it, it sort of gets into that. And Gabrielle Hamilton's book does too. But uh, it's a great metaphor. Um, even though I hate to disagree with with you. Ever. I love it when you disagree with me. It makes my thinking better. Well, because I, I don't know what we gain by saying there's no writer's block. You know, it's um, it's like in Chuck Klosterman's book, he talks about the new book, he, you know, what if we're wrong? Or I think that's what it's called. I may be wrong. Something like that. He talks about some of this stuff. He talks about the canon and about how wrong we're going to be about mm-hmm. whatever we think is going to be canonized. Right. And one of the things he talks about is science. We, we now know that gravity, we know that there's this thing called gravity. But what he, the question he asks is, and he talks to some science guys is, you know, well, what if gravity is just actually not its own thing, but the result of something we don't know about? Something spinning somewhere that we haven't found yet. Right. And gravity is merely the product of that. Well, wouldn't that change our entire understanding? But that doesn't mean that the force of gravity is any less potent on us now. Okay. So writers, to me, we can call it something else, but I feel like, except I know when I was somebody who couldn't write till I was 30, I had to get to a place of understanding. It helped me to define it as being blocked because once I knew, oh, there's a block, I was able to think about removing the block. So let me try to tease out the semantics a little bit. When we say, I have writer's block, it's a little like saying, I have a cold or I have a wart or I have cancer. These are things that happen to us. If you do an engram search in uh, Google, which lets you track words that have appeared, the word, the phrase writer's block did not occur in American literature until the 1930s and 40s. It wasn't a thing. It just wasn't a thing. There wasn't a need for a word for, I need to write for a living and I'm unable to write. I'm stuck. That didn't happen. Because they were either writers or not writers. <laughs> because actually, almost no one wrote for a living. Right. You wrote because you wanted to write. Yeah. And if you weren't writing, 
you, I'm not knitting either, but no one gets knitter's block. No one gets plumber's block. No one gets juggler's block. Well, because we're talking about an inchoate feeling though. What I, what, how I would define this feeling. And I think it's important because of the letters we both get from people who feel, we're feeling this, right? It's important to dive into Mm -hmm. it. I think it's like central to a lot of people's existence, this question of what it means to not be able to do what I believe I'm meant to do, right? I have a feeling inside me. It feels unexpressed either in painting or sculpture or cooking or writing. It's a feeling. I want to try to manifest it. And something I feel a pressure stopping me from manifesting it. And I end up feeling disappointed in myself. So not only do I not express the thing, but I then have let myself down. And so to me, I think, well, okay, let's diagnose it. Let's say, you know, um, it's you're uh, in it having a temporary block. There are tools that we can find that can help you barrel through and get to the other side. Where's that? Where's well, the fault in my okay. thinking? The fault is, first of all, there's no other side. But secondly, well, uh, I'm going to lead yeah. to that. So here's the deal. The people who say they have writer's block, show me all your bad writing. Show me the 10 novels you've written while you've been stuck. Because do you have a typing problem or do you have a problem of self-judgment that's keeping you from showing me a thing that you right, think it's is the good Yeah, often Clearly. it's the inner critic self-judgment. Right. So you don't yeah. actually have writer's block. What you have is the habit and the desire to be a stuck writer. That there's a lot of safety in being a stuck writer. You have chosen to be a stuck writer. You would rather be a stuck writer than a writer who is writing stuff you're not proud of. And what I'm arguing is, let's begin by saying, I'm writing work I am not proud of. I would like it to be better. But please don't tell me you have writer's block, because I know you know how to type. I know you know how to tell jokes that aren't funny on your way to telling jokes that are it's funny. It's interesting. Have you? It's like, um, but in a way, I feel like it, it, it's like uh, you're saying there's no colorblindness. No, I'm not. It's the opposite of that. Because, no, because of having, because I lived this, right? I couldn't have shown you my bad work. Right, I couldn't have shown you the bad work at thirty. I could have only shown you no work, and the deep knowledge that somewhere in me was a writer. But you loved in that moment. Part of you liked the fact that you could say to yourself, because I didn't know you then, but you could certainly say to yourself, "I have gems inside of me, and I just am having trouble expressing them." That's way more comforting than saying, "I'm making dreck." Yeah, but there's a there's a notion even even. It wasn't even that I thought, yeah, that thought shows up, but the dominant thought is just that I'm worthless. I'm saying the dominant thought yeah, is, and, and, that, and this, that has its own charms. They're related. That, has, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of self-loathing has something. But I guess what I want to know is, what's the value? Walk, walk us through, really, what is the value in, if you're feeling that way, what is the value in the language change? Because... Because what's the tool or what's the technique or what's the, like for me, it's recommending morning pages to people because that gets you flowing. Sure. It gets some words coming out, which then allows you to, I have found, it somehow gets the subconscious out of the way and allows you to do the work. For me, it was helpful to think of it as a way to transcend the uh, writer's block. It helped me once I was able to, yeah. because for a long time, I couldn't use the word. I didn't know I wanted, I would have said, I just feel right. what I feel is there's some, I couldn't have said there's something I'm not doing that I'm meant to do that I'm supposed to do. I feel called to a kind of expression that I can't manifest. Let's think hard about almost any other profession where we expect the professional to be good at it. The first time from the, from like, the start. I need my appendix out. Study, study, study. And when you're I'm ready. I'm a block surgeon? Well, yeah. I'm a, I would, but I'm a block surgeon. Right. So what we yeah. want is a surgeon who's done a thousand appendixes before they take us on. Sure. And what we know is that the act of painting or writing or leading a, a team or describing a vision in politics are all the act of practice. And there's nothing more comforting than being able to say to people at a cocktail party, I'm working on a novel. Really? What's it about? I can't tell you. This is perfect. It's safe. It's respected. You win, right? The opposite. The worst thing is I slaved for two years on my novel. It was rejected. I self-published it. It was savaged in the New York Times. That's like death, right? So which is better? It's better to say, I can't tell you, but I'm working on it. So my answer is, no, I'd rather have you act like a surgeon or a gardener or a productive painter. Keep doing this work. 
You can do it under a pseudonym if you want. Blog every day, do the morning pages, record a demo and put it on iTunes or Spotify every single day. And now you can come to me and say, my work's not very good. (laughs) That's a much better conversation than I have writer's block. Thanks. Uh, You can find Seth Godin. You can't find him online. He doesn't check his Twitter. You can email him, though. No, please. Email Tim Ferriss, not me. I get too many emails. Email Seth. Like, and if you don't hear back, email him again right <laughs> oh away. Like, God. within the same, you want to, because look, he will write, you can guilt, he can be guilted into responding. But if you do want to email me, you can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Themomentbk at gmail.com. Can I tell gmail. you why I'm being so ungenerous about email? It's my crutch. When I'm hiding, I'm answering email. Because at the end of the day, I can say, wow, I had a productive day today. I was busy the whole day. And then I say, Oh, yeah. All I did was answer 400 emails. Right. So, yeah, Seth has no uh, online presence at all. But if you subscribe to his blog, you'll feel like you're in a real exchange with him. And you will be in a real exchange with him. And, um, you know, if he appears somewhere, go see him or stalk him. Wait, that's bad, too. Don't stalk him. (laughs) You don't want your email address, man. And stalking is worse. I think that's maybe even worse. All right, Seth, thanks. Thank you, Brian. Bye.